we're, we're concluding a series on truth this morning. And uh, I want to I write this sentence right here. I want to really try and speak to truth and lay it as much on the table as I, I possibly can. And, and if, if God sees fit, that it would change our worldview. It would shape how we see ourselves and the world. And I want to just start with this question and, and then kind of cascade it down. So please bear with me for a minute. But this... this question is a tautology. It's a, it's, a, it's a duplication. It's asking a redundancy. Is truth true? Well, if logic is true, if, if the law of non-contradiction is true, if, if, we, if we take those things to be inviolable, then this statement is true. Of course, truth is true. It's, it's inherent in the definition. But in the 1900s, some interesting things started happening. With Einstein, we began to realize that what we had taken as laws to the universe, constants to the universe, Einstein's kind of physical laws, that those, those were called into question. Einstein found instances where those were not true, where they broke down, where there was a degree of relativity, and it was earth-shattering in some sense. For hundreds of years, um, Newtonian physics was, was, was the law. And on the heels, very quickly on the heels of Einstein, we began to realize, you know, on really grand scales or really grand speeds, uh, Newtonian physics broke down. And on really small levels, the quantum level, if you get really, 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 really tiny, all of a sudden all laws just go out the window and there's this incredible amount of uncertainty that gets built in and, and, and the laws don't then map on anymore and, and weird things happen, almost like where you could get a math equation that says you could be in two places at the same time and, and it's really funky and so ever since the time of Einstein and, and quantum physics we have really weird TV shows that ask these questions of what if, what if you know we could go back in time, what if we could be in two places at the same time, what if, what if Michael J. Fox had a car and you know what I'm saying like just and But it was really a shocking thing to the world of modernity where everything was fixed. And it's one of the subtle, there's a, a whole lot of forces that come in here, but it's one of the subtle things that led to post-modernity. Saying science and, and technology can't map fully uh, the world we see before us, or even our world of experience. And we come into a post-modern world where we, this idea that science is just going to continue, 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 and explain it all, and, and be everything, is no longer kind of where we're at. And we, we come out of that and begin to um, look other places. And so we have this really interesting thing where on a scientific level almost, we begin to doubt, is truth true? And then falling from that, as we hit post-modernity, and, and we kind of, we kind of are, are against the Enlightenment program, or beyond the Enlightenment program of, of science, we also then add in um, biological evolution. And this idea that there is no grand creator to life, we're an accident of blind chance, we're, we're kind of, the, we've taken a lot of wrong turns on a road that nobody designed, and we've ended up somewhere. And that's really what it means to be human. There's no archetypal design. All the way back to uh, Aristotle and moving forward, there's always this idea of telos, 
which is a Greek word for end or purpose. There was always this idea that as human beings, there was a, a, we were created, and we were created with an end in mind. There was a design, just like any machine was designed for a purpose. And so we began to question science, and we then began to also question the idea of design, and if there's no design, inherent design with people, then there's no sense of absolute morality or ethics. There's no end goal for human existence. So ethically speaking, is ethics true? Is morality true? Is design true? Is humanity or our, our end purpose true? And the answer began to be no, not really. We don't know. And so we kind of came to this point where we don't know if truth is true. And, and then we don't know, or, or we, we're really skeptical as to whether there's anything absolute about morality and, and what should be or ought to be. And what's really fascinating about both of these things, and this is a little aside, everybody's an absolutist at the end of the day, okay? Nobody lives at light speed and nobody lives uh, at the quantum level. The, the level that we live at really is governed by Newton's equations. And you can't be two places at the same time. We, we, all, we all live with absolutes, um, morality and ethics. We can play mind games about whether you know, we've just invented a sense of you shouldn't steal or you shouldn't harm other people. And after an hour of having that conversation with somebody, you can grab their radio on, on the way out the door and they'll say, hey, stop that. What are you doing? Well, I want it. And for me, my ethics is um, to take what I want. That's, that's the, the code I live by. And the very next comment out of them is not going to be, oh, wow, I love that you're expressing your code of ethics. This is a wonderful experience for me to be witnessing this right now. The next reaction for them is going to be, that's not okay. But it's my code of ethics. Well, then your code of ethics is wrong. You know, nobody, nobody lives um, in a relativistic, fully relativistic sense. We, we play these games, but everybody's an absolutist at the core, and we could go further down that road and push on it some more. But, but we began to question whether truth was true, whether ethics, morality was true. And then it became, uh, became a real interesting thing because as Christians, we have a book that talks about a creator who created this world with order that led to the scientific revolution, this idea that every, things are repeatable and they're logical and they're sequential, that God designed it. And that there's a certain sense of morality and ethics in this too. And so both of those things bring up this question then of, is this true? Is scripture true? Is God's word true? And so we put that in the equation and say, is this true? And, and then we start arguing and we start wrestling about whether Scripture is authoritative or true or inspired, if it's, if it's got errors or not. And in doing so, we create two categories. We create the people that believe that it's true and, and then the people that don't believe it's true. And, and the people that believe it's true, those are the good guys in the Christian world. And the people that don't believe it's true, well, see, those are the bad guys from a Christian perspective. And we need to argue this out because they're bad guys, gals, and they're wrong. And they need to come to understand that this is true like we know it's true. And then this is how the conversation goes. And so if you go hear a pastor talk about a scripture true, the conversation is about defending that this is true and that you are wrong if you don't believe this is true. And then you walk out with a couple more bullets in your gun and the next time you see the Mormon or the Muslim, you can shoot them dead. But I don't think that's the sense in which truth really shows up. Like a, a conversation or an argument or an intellectual problem or a relational difference or a fun game or even a value or even something we're good at if we're a trained apologist or whatnot. Tr truth doesn't sit on that table. Truth is not an argument. Truth is not um, 
something that puts me in the right and you in the wrong. Truth stands on its own as an absolute, universally at all times. And, the, and that brings up an unbelievable reality that Jesus could not believe that people, even the religious people in his day, did not understand. And so he came and they wanted to debate truth with him. And so they would ask questions to trap him, to really show that he was a liberal, or, or to really get him to show his cards so that they could say, you're really a bad guy, not a good guy. And they would ask questions of truth and arguments of truth. And Jesus would always do something really fascinating. He would tell a story to answer their question of truth, and the story was usually an ethical story. What, what, what must we do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, um, there's a guy. He was a Samaritan. He was on the road to Jericho. And he comes up on this dude beat in the road that the Levite and the priest had walked around. And he sees this guy, and he is so moved with the urgency of this situation that if he was in the same situation, that he would have to, to do something or he would need someone to do something. He'd be compelled, and he says, I have to do something. And he bandages the guy up and he takes him to the, the hotel and he pays a fee so that somebody will look after the guy. And, and then he's, you know, he's caring for the guy. And, and Jesus is like, that's what love is. That's true. That, that's where it's really found. If truth exists, that's what exemplifies truth. If love exists, that story is what exemplifies love because it's not self-serving, it's sacrificial. So who do you think loved in this story? The Samaritan. And Jesus says, you've, you've judged correctly. Jesus uses an ethical story to answer questions of truth. Why? Because these ethical stories take the question off the table. This is going to look weird, so I won't do it. No, the, and put us in the story itself, under truth, having to decide or determine whether we are true or not. Whether we're in alignment with what is or ought to be or not whether our life is complete or whole or good or, or right or not, whether we're on the side of truth, not whether truth is a weapon in our gun, whether we're right in the argument or whether we're right with God. And, and Jesus is saying, you don't understand truth at all. It's not a logical theorem on a piece of paper. If it is, then it exists off the paper too. And it brings you in your life into question under the microscope, in the spotlight, and at all times says, if this is alignment, are you in alignment or not? If this is true ethics, then are you in alignment or not? If it's really about loving your neighbor, well, are you loving your neighbor? It's so flipping radical that Jesus was so baffled by the, the religious leaders that they're asking these truth questions and he's saying, I, you don't even, I don't know what conversation we're having here. Truth is so small for you. It's a game for you. You use it to build yourself up. You use it to be, I don't even understand what you're talking about when you're talking about truth. And Jesus, I don't know how to have this conversation. I'm going to go find some different dudes. There's a passage in there that says that. Um, Jesus says you can't pour new wine into old wineskins. I can't talk these days to anyone without them trying to put me in the box of conservative or in the box of liberal. It's really easy. Everybody hates me, you know? Like, I can't win. But Jesus was the same, in some way, I don't want to put myself on the side of Jesus. That might, but Jesus walked up and, and they were always trying to put him in a box. He's like, look, I, 
You're not even listening. I got to go find some guys that'll listen. And so that's why it's in the book of Luke. I'm going to go find some new dudes. Because the soil, there's a parable of soil, the soils. And if you, if you listen to that, the seed is the message. And the soil is our receptivity to that message. And see, truth is supposed to get in. It's like the matrix when Neo like flew into people. You, you know what I'm talking about? And then they start like glowing and he like explodes them. Is it in just one? Was it only in one episode? Because maybe it's confusing. It was only one episode. I, I thought it was in more. But you know what I'm talking about? Truth is supposed to invade us and take root and then change us and shape us and mold us and our whole worldview realigns. We die to self and then we live to Christ and we begin to go, man, I'm not true. My life isn't true. My marriage isn't true. My, my, my relationship as a dad isn't true. My, my preaching is so great compared to my ability to live it out. I am not 100% true or in alignment. And I can't, no matter how much I try, perfect that and come into harmony, complete harmony. And I need your help, God. Paul screamed that way. I'm the chief of all sinners. And, and, and I, I, I know the good I ought to do, yet I can't do it. And, and God is the one who puts his hand on the clay and begins to mold us. And, and Jesus is talking about, and Paul talks about, how the Holy Spirit will come and aid us and change us from the inside out because I can't be perfectly true when it comes to love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, mercy, self-control. I, I can't. And when I, when I see truth and when I look at my own life, I'm realizing if I'm not receptive, if I don't stop playing silly, stupid games that are designed to puff me up or make me look good or so that I would win or to even defend myself against insecurities, because I don't like when people call me liberal or conservative or whatever. You know, so let me, let me just make my whole energy about the game and not even realize what Jesus is trying to do in my life. And then pretty soon the, the cares of this world are going to choke out what could have been developing or being nurtured in me and then ultimately through me. Truth, if it exists at all, was designed to invade me and to change every part of me. So this is how we're supposed to read scripture. I, uh, I got to sit with Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann is like Yoda. This, he's this wise sage and he uses these mannerisms and I mean, it's unbelievable. I wish we had a picture of him. We don't have a picture of him, do we? We do. Kip is gonna get us a picture of Walter Brueggemann. I mean Yoda in a good way, okay? I, uh, he's like Yoda, right? But he's so... I'm going to send him this tape. Um, I'm going to send, send Walter the, the video of this. He's got this lyrical way of talking that's unbelievable. Okay? Um, and he said, it, I was in this happy hour uh, with him the day before the conference, and he was talking, and he gave this subtle twist. He said, we talk about Scripture in terms of authority. And he, and he said this. He says, I use the word authorizing. He didn't, he didn't elaborate, so I'll tell you my elaboration of, of that because I think it's incredibly helpful. If it's true, it comes at that very moment with a mandate. If this is authoritative, then it authorizes or commands you to be in alignment with it. When, when I all of a sudden understand that this is the plumb line, the very next realization is where I am in relationship to that. Ouch. If this is the standard or the canon by which things are measured, the very next thing is not, ooh, I can shoot somebody dead with that one. It's, ouch. 
that speaks to my life, that, that demands and commands. Ouch. Let me, let me take this a bit further. I'm going to go fast here. If you want to try and play along, you can turn real quick. But I want to just read some things. Here's Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. Anyone ever anxious about their body? This is the great silent suffering of most Americans. Is that at all times we don't come with a Photoshop guru who can Photoshop us. At all times. In front of all people. And, and we act like we're fine, but we're not. Don't, don't worry about your body. This gets even a little bit more close to home when we start talking about our health and our fears of our health and, and the, the specter of cancer. And Don't worry about your body. Don't worry about your life. Is not your life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? We are all gonna die. God has the hairs on your head numbered, and he knows the number of your days. And I don't care what your cholesterol level is. If God ordains that you're going to die in a car crash, it's not going to matter what your cholesterol level was. It doesn't mean go get a high cholesterol. But you know what I'm saying? Which of you can add a single hour to his span of life, and why are you anxious about clothing? And this is people that probably only had one tunic. You know how many clothes I have in my closet? None of them even fit anymore. You know, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Neither they, they, they neither toil nor spin. They had to tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. God makes the flowers more beautiful than Solomon, and the flowers aren't wise, and the flowers aren't rich, but they're God's. So don't worry about wisdom or rich. Worry about God. All right, let's move forward. First Peter chapter 2. Is that, let me stop here. Is that true that we're not supposed to worry and if it's true, that means we have to absorb it. It has to penetrate us. It has to change us. We have to recognize there's supposed to be an alignment there. 1 Peter 2. Verse 9. Mm. Ah, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, travelers, strangers, and exiles. <laughs> Boy, every time you hit one of these words, by the way, we could talk about immigration. Uh, I, um, it's a tangent. But... I tell you what God sees when he sees an immigrant. He sees the same thing he sees when he sees you or me. Someone he created, that he loves, that he gifted, that he, that he longs to be brought into the fullness of community and shalom. And he probably sees somebody that is fighting so picking hard to just put food on their plate and is being passed by every day by people who don't understand the silent suffering going on and he doesn't see the Georgia law that says if you're riding in the car with an illegal immigrant you can be thrown in jail. You know Georgia bragged during Jim Crow days uh, that they had the most stringent Jim Crow laws. And Georgia was the predominant state that when we took the, the land from the Cherokees. Why? Because gold was found and they had plantations. Go study that one. And so now 
you know, you see, you see the patterns. Now they have the strictest laws on immigration. What, what's really different? Nothing is really different. The whole time God sees people. Anyways, what's true? That God loves people or, or, or politics? Now, I, I'm all for politics around the dinner table. But this is church. And this is the word of God. And the word of God is true. And God loves people. And you and I are aliens. We're immigrants. We're sojourners on this world. It is not our home. And this is what Peter says. So abstain from the passions of the flesh. What's that? Think all day long about how we're going to gratify our, our selfish demands because we're consumers? No. Abstain from just gratifying and hitting the buttons like the silly stupid mice in those, those experiments that are in those cages. And, and they, they, they get a little thing that makes them happy and they just hit the button. You know, don't be like that. Because those, those, those things, they wage war against your soul. And God wants to, to change you with truth and make you the image of his son. And if he begins to change you into the image of his son and work in your life, it's going to exhaust you. And you're going to go to bed tired and beat up and poured out, but with a smile on your face. You see, comfort is a great thing for unanimity and church growth. It's not a good thing for martyrdom. And then it continues and says this, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or supreme. Really? Peter? You're right. You're talking about the emperor? Didn't Peter get killed by an emperor? Be subject to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Don't go do whatever you feel like doing, because Thomas Jefferson said, you have the right to the pursuit of happiness, by golly. So I'm going to do whatever the heck I feel like. I'm going to keep hitting the button like the mouse, because I'm free just like that mouse. I can hit the button. It's right there in front of me. Don't tell me I can't. I'm an American. <laughs> honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Talks other places about pray for it. Is that true that we're supposed to pray for our leaders? Is it true? Not just so that I can win an argument against you and be more right than you. Do I stand underneath truth, underneath scripture? Am I below it? Is there a mandate? Do I have to come into alignment with it? Is it true? Do you know when the last time I prayed for Obama was? The Bible says confess your sins one to another. So I'm being right right now. It's a, I shouldn't be joking. Is it true? Luke 17, 3. Pay attention to yourselves. It's a great way for Scripture to say, listen up. This isn't about a bullet in the gun and for your friend. This is about you. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Is that true? What did that person do to you years ago that you haven't forgiven? What did your spouse do to you that you've held on to and it's a wedge between you and you're bitter? How much, how much of your life are you going to waste punishing your parents because they, they weren't the perfect mommy or daddy? 
they did the best with what they had because I guarantee you their mommy and daddy probably weren't perfect either. We have to forgive. Is that true? If it's true, what does that mean? Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to, to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You're my family. I want you to be together. I want you to one another each other. I want you to, to help each other through life, through the obstacle course. I want you to, to help each other up over that, that silly like wall and, and over the, the mud pits. And I want you to do this together so that you're, you are together and that you help each other win. I don't want you to compete so that, that one of you wins by putting your foot on the neck of the other. I want shalom, I want family, I want unity, I want togetherness, I want the joy of all of this. And when you are judging, you are splitting and rending and, and being against, and, and I'm seeing it all. And if that's you, if that's what you're bringing to this world, if that's what you're bringing to my church and my kingdom, I will pay it back on you to the degree that you judge others, I will judge you. Is that true? If scripture is authoritative, it mandates, it authorizes, it commands, it compels, it is designed to penetrate and to change us and to remake us completely because at all times there's a plumb line. And at all times, we are somewhere in relation to that. And if we want to understand truth, at that very moment, we're understanding to what degree we are either in alignment or not in alignment. And so Jesus came upon these Pharisees that liked to argue about truth and what they didn't understand <laughs> is that arguing about truth is often the greatest enemy to truth. Arguing about truth is often the greatest enemy to truth because it pushes it outside and it puts it in a box. And so Jesus shows up and he has to navigate our rigid truths to try and talk about truth. You want to talk about what it means to be institutionalized or legalistic or pharisaical. What it really means is to become fossilized with a view of truth, lowercase t, that insulates you from being looked at or having the spotlight shine on you or for you to hear what God would say to you such that he could remake you, capital T, truth. And so Jesus has to navigate so often our rigid truths to try and talk to us about truth. And so we have to at all times, put our hands out and be humble and to, to realize that we need to ask forgiveness and to be willing to take and look at ourselves, ourselves, not just others, so that we can understand our own heart and what's hidden there and that God knows it and that he can shine a light into it. Not only that, but that he, he loves us and can change it. And so all times, God's truth is working in our life along with his grace. But when we objectify truth and calcify and fossilize and make it about this agenda we have of winning, God's like, man, I wish I could have a conversation with you, but you don't even have ears to hear. I'm standing at the door of your church and knocking while you guys are sitting in there talking about who's right and who's wrong. There's too many churches that 
and we're going to have a series on the seven letters of the seven churches coming up. And Jesus is standing there knocking, going, man, I got something to say. I, I, I have some input into this. I would work with you if your soil was receptive. If you could listen and hear and engage with the conversation, I would work with you. And it would sting at first. It would be difficult at first. And it would necessitate change, which is going to scare the heck out of you. But I said, don't worry about anything. Me remaking you, as scary as that is, you having to change, as scary as you having to renounce habits, as scary as you having to confront your fears or to let go of things you've been harboring, as scary as that is, I'll take care of you. Because that's true. So I'm standing at the door, let me in. John 14, 6, if you'd turn there. Well, let's just start in John 14. Listen to this. Let not your hearts, John 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, if it were not true, if it wasn't real, I would tell you so. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you if it were not true? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. First, is it true? Is this hope we have in vain or is it true? If we stand underneath scripture, it says that it's true. What does that do to the way we live our lives? And so, so Thomas is saying, okay, man, if you're going there, how do we get there? What is the way? I don't know what the way is. If you're saying it's true, then how do I align myself with that? Jumping down, Jesus says this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would, have, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. The question is, Jesus true? The question is, am I true? Right, authentic, real, in alignment. And Jesus is saying, I am true. And he is saying, you follow me. If you're in me, you will know the truth. You will know the way. You will have the life. And so at all times, when I, when I read this book in the morning, when I read it at night, when I read it to my kids, it's not just little moral lessons for them. It asks the question, am I true? Let's roll through this real quick. In the American church, we get bored. And then we go find another church, just like when you get bored of a TV show. Just like you get, you get bored of a restaurant that you've gone to for three years or four years or anything else. If it is about gratifying our needs, we get bored. If it is about submitting to truth and slowly being changed and being in community because I have to have people around me if I'm going to slowly learn how to, how to grow into this. And if there's an obligation for me to be knit into community so that there's a depth of relationship so that one another, we can rub off on each other and, and help change each other, then I have to stay rooted in that church because it's all about the depth and the consistency of relationship. That's why we don't trade families every year. Right? Because when, when it's really down, I said this to my wife yesterday. I said, you know what's amazing about my parents and my sister? 
more than any other family I know, if the chips are, if I have to call them today, they would sell everything, do everything without batting an eye. I have an amazing family. I don't want to trade them. Now, you know, they also, we have our holidays. Okay? It's okay. Family's quirky. Churches are quirky. But there's a depth of relationship there. And if we don't get the program here about truth, and if it's just about sitting and being entertained and getting bullets for the gun, you will get, you're probably already bored. The American church is so wired wrong. And culture creates a truth, lowercase t, and we stand in a particular culture. We are sitting in an American version of what American Christianity looks like. We've been raised up in that. We've breathed the air. Whether we like it or not, we've drank that Kool-Aid. We are consumers to some degree or another. You can't go through adolescence in America without somehow being shaped as a consumer. You just can't. We are what we eat to some degree. And we have to critique that culture if we want to reach for truth. We have to critique that culture. Find the weak points, the untrue parts, and how it, it, it is in us if we're going to reach for, for truth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, the sin of respectable people reveals itself in flight from responsibility. The sin of respectable people reveals itself in flight from responsibility. Is scripture just about authority or does it come with a mandate? Does it command itself on us? Does it authorize us to run out into this world and to be victorious and to live a life in Christ that God has called us to? Flannery O'Connor said, um, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. I want this church to not be like any other church. I spent the first five years of Antioch trying to, to sell people on the idea that we're, we're like that church that you used to go to that you like so much. We're, we're like that. This will be great for you. Oh, and we're like that too. Oh, and your friend that had a great experience at this church. We're like that too. You'll, you'll enjoy this. This will, this will be a good experience for you. We're, we're like everybody else, so it, it'll suit your needs and meet your felt needs and scratch your itches and, and, and appease your tastes. This, this is, and I'm so over that. I'm so over it. I don't want you here unless you want to be odd. We want to find what is true. We want to follow it. We want to embrace it. We want to digest it. We want to, we want to not be culturized. We want to be submissive to God who stands in opposition to our man-made kind of cultural ideas. And we want to be different. I don't want to be like the church you went to. I don't even know anything about it. I don't know if God was even working at it. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in if God is working here and if you want to be a part of that. I'm interested if you're willing to invest enough, to serve enough, to be one another enough here that you're in it for the long haul and that you're not just going to come for a year or two and then get bored and rip the fabric of this church when you go find something else that's just fun or new and you're not bored yet. I, I don't, I want this to be different to be odd, to be out of step. I came up with this last night at midnight. If we don't critique our Christianity, God will. If we don't critique our Christianity, our variant strand of it, our religion, if we don't critique that, God will. That's the whole idea of the prophetic 
the prophetic always comes as the minority voice in to, create, uh, to challenge and to try to speak truth into the dominant majority culture that doesn't realize the syncretism. I had a missionary friend once, and I said, you've been in Jordan all these years. Now you're back in America. What's the thing you notice about America? Because you've got fresh eyes. And he said, the syncretism. He says, we always talk about syncretism with every other culture where we're sending missionaries. And he says, I came back, and all I see is syncretism with American consumer materialistic Christianity. It's the majority straining. The prophetic voice comes as a minority and it comes to challenge. What we have to realize is if we don't critique this, God will. And what typically happens with the prophetic voice is we look around and we're comfortable and we're like everyone else and it's like our old church and it's like our neighbor and it's like the book I read that was on the New York Times bestseller and I, you're, 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 uh, you're not happy, dude. You, 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 need, you need to read your best life now and, and stop being so, you know, ill. I, you just, you're, you're rocking the boat. And you're negative. Didn't you get the whole program about smiling? Didn't you get the whole program about if God shows up in this church, we all look 10 years younger and get a Cadillac? Didn't you get that God loves to just bless us and bless us and bless us and wait on us? Didn't you, didn't you get that? Why are you being so critical? Why are you being so negative? And we, we will take and we will push the minority voice out, even if it's the voice sent by God to critique our version or our strand of Christianity. Truth is absolute. And the beautiful thing here is this lest you think it's legalistic. When we understand that truth is absolute, we understand our inability to be true. Truth demands grace. Truth demands grace. The gospel is that standing underneath the law and what's right and good and true and perfect that we just can't, we're broken, that there is grace, that we can be in Christ, that God will mold us, that God will shape us, that God will renew us, and there is grace. And so what we come to is this middle standpoint. If, I, if three of my kids come and they violated my law, and the one kid is defiant and says, I, I'm not going to admit that I violated the law, I, I, in my gut I'm like, what is, what is going on? If the other kid comes and says, I'm sorry, but then I look at the heart, and I'm like, I don't even know that they were conscious of the words, I'm sorry. It was so just routine, they were already looking to the video game that they were going to go play as soon as they got done with the mechanical exercise of saying sorry and getting my forgiveness. I mean, where's your heart, and where, where am I even at with you? I don't even know that you know I exist. You're just going through. And then I've got the kid in the middle that says, Dad, I'm sorry. I want to please you. I want to be with you. I want, your, I want you to be proud of me. You know, I, I love that. And I, I did something and it's wrong and I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? I don't, I don't like how this feels. I don't like the separation. I want, I want the fellowship. I want the unity. Please, would you forgive me? And God says, yes, I forgive you. I love you. I have grace for you. And this, this, this child now walks away, and that grace is so transformative at this point that they want to go think better thoughts and try better and enjoy being obedient more and get excited about living in fellowship with God and loving more. And if they make a mistake, it's the same brokenness, but this is what it means to accept the gospel. And we always take a thin slice of the gospel. It's like we dissect it at one layer and we miss the whole picture of the amalgam of the organic piece when it's all there. We take this one thin thing and we say, it's all about forgiveness. 
And this person just, oh, it's so light and fluffy. I don't even know what's going on. And this person says, oh, great. Jesus, will you forgive me and let me into your heaven? That was so fun. Now what am I going to do with the next 40 years of my life pleasuring myself? Because I have the right to do that just like the mouse. And we, we miss the gospel because we're so worried about works that we pendulum swing over here to cheap grace. And we don't understand there's something relational and whole and true here. And we know it when we see it. And when we flip it around, that's where we're supposed to be. And when we understand that at all times against truth, it shows where we're not in alignment. And when we realize what that means and that God still loves us, when we realize we're an immigrant, that we're not some top-of-the-heap American entitled person, but we're a sojourner and we're an alien and we're weak and we're helpless and we're, 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 God loves us. That's the gospel. That's responding to truth. And truth, the law, Paul tells us, sets up the beauty of God's grace. Father, let, let this church, I don't, I don't know, God. <laughs> yeah, my, I don't know what you want to do with us. I have no clue. <laughs> but let us not play games, please. I, I, break us if you have to. Send a prophetic voice if you have to. Bring trials into our life if you have to. But do not let us proclaim a false witness. Do not let our lives mar your name because we are cheapening the gospel or just not even getting grace or not even being willing to take a look at ourselves. Show us the beauty of your son who is the way and the truth and the life and let us throw off everything that would hinder us from following him, from running hard after him. Let us throw off everything because it's going to hold us back from being where you're at, from knowing you, from being with you. And I just pray that this church, if it does anything, would offer a little by way of encouragement, a little by way of one anotherness, a little by way of grace that we are on this journey together, whether another person ever sets foot in this door. We don't care about the size. We don't care about any of it. Just let it be yours and let it be good. Let it be true. Pray this in Jesus' name.